Great. Well, my name is Russell Gold. I'm a senior energy reporter with the Wall Street Journal, and I'm very pleased and proud to welcome everyone here to this panel, uh, part of the fourth annual uh, Texas Tribune Festival. The title of this panel is Deconstructing the Boom, and um, of course what we're here to talk about is this incredible surge of energy and energy production uh, that's going on in the United States. Since we're in Texas and, and we've got a great panel of, of Texans here, I just wanted to mention that a lot of people talk about the Bakken. That's a big deal. Uh, if the Bakken were in Texas, it would be the third largest oil field in the state. So just to keep that in perspective, the, Texas is producing a lot of oil and gas right now, especially oil. So let me introduce the panel, and we're going to jump right in. The way this is set up is that we'll talk for, uh, we'll, we'll, the panel will talk for about 40 minutes, and then we'll go uh, to questions from the audience. And I think there are two microphones set up. So uh, when I introduce it, if you could just stand up and go, and I will uh, call on you. And please remember to ask a question. Uh, so great panel here today. Starting from my left um, is Christy Craddock. She is the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, which is the oil and gas regulator in the state. Um, it's been on the commission since 2012. She is a native of Midland, a lawyer uh, who handled energy issues uh, in, in, in her practice, and then served for about a decade as a political and legal advisor to her father, Representative Tom Craddock. Uh, next to her uh, is Congressman Bill Flores. He is the congressman from the 17th District of Texas, which includes Waco and Aggieland, uh, and very close, I think, Part to... Of Austin. And part of Austin. But I was going to say, uh, you almost get some of the great barbecue in Elgin. You don't quite get into the barbecue pants, well, but you're very... I've got snows in Lexington. Oh, there you now, go. So. All right, so um, you've uh, elected in 2010, served since 2011 in Congress, and prior to that, uh, for three decades, worked in the oil industry in a, a series of chief finance officer, chief operating officer, and chief executive roles. Uh, next to him is uh, Blake Farenthold, Congressman from the 27th District of Texas, which includes Corpus, Victoria, um, and very close to the great barbecue in Lockhart, but not quite there, right? Yeah, I have a city market in Lily. There we go. All right, we've got some great barbecue <laughs> represented today. Um, he also was elected in the fall of 2010, served since 2011. Uh, he's a lawyer and uh, was in the computer business and also hosted a talk show uh, in Corpus or? or Corpus Christi. In Corpus, okay. Uh, okay, so next to him we have uh, Mike Collier. Uh, he is the Democratic Party nominee for Comptroller. Uh, started off as an Exxon landman, spent 22 years at PricewaterhouseCoopers, took early retirement in 2011, and then went to serve as the chief financial officer of a private equity-backed petroleum company. And then finally, on the end, um, we have Jim Keffer, member of the Texas House of Representatives, his district running from the outskirts of Fort Worth all the way to the outskirts of Abilene, and as he put it to me recently, picking up all the Dairy Queens in between. Uh, <laughs> And proud of it. <laughs> Small business owner and uh, chairman, of course, of the Texas House Committee on Energy Resources. And unfortunately, we were supposed to have uh, Senator, uh, State Senator Carlos Uresti with us. He is not here. If he shows up, we'll just, we've got a chair for him. We'll seat him. Or wait, the chair disappeared. He can sit on somebody's lap. <laughs> He'll sit on the floor. I'm, we're not sure how we're handling that. He but um, if Carlos Uresti does show up, he, he has the, the, the he's, his website says, I thought this was interesting, he, he's got bits of the Eagleford and the Permian in his district, and his website says he has 23,000 oil and gas wells um, in his district. So let me start off um, with you, Chairman Craddock, if you would. There was a great bumper sticker from the last oil and gas boom that said, uh, please God, uh, give me one more, well, it's actually after the boom, please God, give me one more oil boom, and I promise not to mess it up this time. You don't see those anymore because we, we are having another boom, 
and everyone's buying new trucks, so they don't have the old bumper stickers on anymore. <laughs> but, but here's my question. What does that mean? How do we avoid, in five or ten years, bringing that bumper sticker out of retirement? How do we avoid not messing up this, this incredible opportunity that we have right now? Well, you haven't been to Midland in a while because we actually do have the bumper sticker occasionally. And I will say I don't think we're there yet because the, uh, the Rolls-Royce dealership hadn't made it back to Midland yet, so the bust is not imminent, by the way. Um, but I, well, I call it sustained economic growth, and I think that's where we've been for the last 10 years, and I think that's where we'll continue to go. You know, you've got 34 states now that are active in the oil and gas industry, which is different than it was last time. Uh, you have a great regulatory body, I believe, in the Railroad Commission who's got good rules in place. And you've got other states that we all work together to try to make sure we've got best practices in place. It's an international commodity that people don't really realize. And with growth all over the world and politics, which these two gentlemen next to me to the left probably can talk more about on a national level, um, Internationally, I think that makes a difference for us. But we're back to 33% of our state's economy is now oil and gas again, direct economy. But where we're seeing a difference really, and I think Texas is a leader, there are more opportunities first and foremost than we've ever had. Last time, last oil boom, and like I said, sustained economic growth is it. And you touched on it when you started introducing us. It's all over our state for the first time. Last time it was just the Permian Basin. Everybody knew where it was. We thought we were done 20 years ago. And what I say about the Permian Basin, but really about the entire country and the state is, you ain't seen nothing yet. And so let me give you a little perspective because I think numbers are interesting and, and um, gives you an idea of where we are today. We have 900 rigs running in the state of Texas right now. There are 1,900 running in the country. So almost half the rigs running in the, sta- in the country are running in the state of Texas right now. The Permian Basin has 487 rigs running right now. The uh, Eagle Fur that everybody talks about in the entire country has 205. So that's the difference. And here's what is different between the two. Um, The Permian Basin has 10 to 14 stacked plays, meaning they can drill 10 to 14 levels down and and produce in all of those levels, and, and depending on where you are. If you talk about the Eagleford, you talk about the Balkan, you talk about other, any, the Marcellus, any place else in the country, they have one, one play. So when um, we talk about the potential growth in the country, we're it, really, in, this, in the country. So you don't see, you, you don't think we're in a, a typical boom-bust cycle. This is, this is something sustained for you. I think it's sustained, and I think we've seen it for 10 years. And I think we've got some challenges, by the way, where Texas is uniquely situated, in my opinion, more so than anybody else, is we have infrastructure in place. We have the pipes in stri- place. We have rules and regulations already in place where Ohio's struggling, for instance, that they can't figure it out, or we all hear about New York who's not doing anything, and and they've got a whole western side of New York that would love the jobs, yet they can't figure out how to put, politically or otherwise, put rules in place. Our rules for fracking that we all talk about, that the last panel talked about, we've had rules in place since the 1940s, and we've just redone our rules to update them to have best practices. So I think we're uniquely situated. We have ports available to ship our oil and natural gas out, um, and we have great relationships with Mexico as they begin to open their, their market. Let me jump down the panel to, to Representative Keffer, because you said something I thought was interesting. You said 33% of the economic um, activity in the state of Texas directly related to oil and gas. The, the, the state um, Senate and, and, and House have to write the budgets, have to make sure that 
uh, things don't go off the rails. Is that, should that be cause for concern that we're once again uh, going back to where we were, which is a very much of a, not a one, a, one industry state, but certainly more than we've been in, in many years? Well, uh, you know, with, with Rick Perry's effort, I mean, we certainly have uh, spread out our manufacturing base, and we, we do, uh, you know, my dad was in the oil business, and I, he brought home a Texas Monthly uh, magazine in 1983, I forget what month, but it was a likeness of James Dean, and the, and the deal was it was great while it lasted. Right. Uh, you probably remember that. And those were the experts then, mm -hmm. that, you know, the Permian Basin's played out, and you better go sell Amway because you're not going to make it in oil and gas anymore. So uh, that is uh, now 236 out of the 254 counties are producing counties, largest ever uh, in history uh, of uh, what we're seeing today. And yes, uh, you got to understand, uh, you know, my dad, we, with my real world life, we have iron foundries and my father-in-law would never allow us to do work with the oil and gas industry because there was never a gradual decline with business. It was a cliff mm -hmm. and you always got left holding the bag as far as you know, uh, bill, uh, your, your uh, invoices. So all those rules, I think people remember those, but, you know, I, I do feel the state does have its eyes open. I do feel we certainly understand the, the, uh, the importance of the oil and gas industry financially to uh, locals and the state. And I think uh, the leadership that I know, the conversations I've had, we are going to be judicious. We do, we understand that issue, but I, but I do feel from, from the experts, and again, these are experts today, but we're looking 20, 30, you know, I mean, I, I, this, this thing is like, that's like, how long, like Christy said, I mean, we, we haven't seen nothing yet kind of deal because we got another whole, uh, shale field around us called a client, mm -hmm. which is not economical yet, mm -hmm. but certainly hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent <clears throat> over there right now to try to know the geology and the client shale doing. sort of it's, it's, it's in part of the Permian, it's it out, is. it's a West Texas place. And as Christy said, it's, it, this one's a four-tier yeah. shale play. So, you know, the technology is there, and especially in uh, Congressman Ferrothold's area, area with Chenier and the export opportunities that we have, well, we are global. Well, let's talk about that way. for a second. You mentioned Chenier, that's a natural gas export, but let's mm -hmm. talk about one of the, the, the hot issues right now in Washington, and that's oil export. Mm -hmm. Essentially... Um, we are not an exporter nation. There is a, effectively a ban on export. And, and I'm, I'm interested from, from the two members of Congress here, should we open up our doors? Should we become a free trade nation and, and, and export? Because let's face it, there is a, some of the analysts that I talk to uh, say we're getting close to a glut of light sweet oil on the Gulf of Mexico and we need to get it out there. Um, so, uh, Congressman Flores, you're shaking your head. Should, what, what should we do? Should we start exporting all this oil? Absolutely. Uh, if you look at the, uh, what could happen if we do this, if mm -hmm. we're able to export our light sweet crude, in which we have insufficient refinery capacity to process, we can lower the world price of oil by about $6 a barrel in the first year. The world price. The we, world we have price. that much that, okay. And so that translates into about a 12 to 20 cent drop in, per gallon in the price of gasoline. Now, I've, I've been interviewed four or five times in the last two weeks on this by the Washington rags. And what I said is, they asked me, do you support oil exports? And I said, yes. They said, do you think you ought to push that through Congress now? And I said, no. I said, what we've got to be able to do is come up with a way to take the economic studies that we've seen, and there are now three of these, that show that we would have a better environment, uh, a better economic environment if we export oil and cheaper oil and cheaper energy prices here at home if we do that. 
but somehow find the way to translate it so that the mom who's taking her kids to school knows that her family's better off because we're exporting oil. But, and until we do that, I don't think we really ought to be trying to push it until we're, we've got the messaging exactly right so that it becomes a grassroots effort that says, we understand, we get it, let's do it. Well, I want to get Congressman okay. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit ahead of the game on this. I, I think we ought to be exporting it now. Uh, Mike McCall has uh, introduced a bill that I'm a co-sponsor of to change those regulations so we can export But, but you also represented the Port of Corpus Christi, and there's been enormous investment in the Port of Corpus Christi to use that, the oil and the natural but gas. But we're going to still be able to refine oil and gas very economically in this country because of the proximity to the natural gas used uh, in the refining process. Our energy costs to refine that product will be lower than most places in the world. So we'll be able to compete on a worldwide basis, regardless of whether or not uh, we're, we're artificially keeping the crude here to be refined and only allowing. It's actually getting exports once it's refined. It's not like we're keeping it all here. We're just, but we're opening it up to where the crude can go out. And we're, we'll, we've got a lot of refineries on the Port of Corpus Christi, and, but they're willing and able to compete. So I want to get um, uh, Mike Collier involved in the conversation. You, you until recently, were, were, help, were the chief financial officer of a petroleum company. How long can this boom realistically last? Um, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. I was, I've been in Houston several times in the last month, and the amount of I mean, this is a city in the middle of a boom right now. They're just building right and left. So how can, long can, can I this... go back to exports before I answer that question? <sighs> you absolutely. Because I might need about five minutes to tell you how many years. Well, we have let me ask. You. Okay, so no, should there's, we be there's only one thing to add. I think to the discussion okay. around exports, um, whether we should or shouldn't. And you know, I'm a CPA and I'm running for comptroller, so I don't want to stray too far from message. But what I'd like to see in the analysis is the refinery capacity on the Gulf Coast is, is levered to heavy crude. That's right. What's right. coming out of the shales is yeah. light crude. Right. Because we thought so it as a country that we'd be getting all this heavy crude so. from Mexico and Venezuela. We geared up the refineries for that, and then we sort of got this curveball, which no one's expecting, which right. is a flood of light sweet crude into the Yeah, refineries. so it's very, it's very complex. We can, we can export refined goods, but we can't export crude. Yet we're a net importer of crude, but then our crude mix coming into the refining isn't, doesn't match the refining capacity. And so whenever you put artificial so, barriers on things, you suddenly start distorting the economics, and that's never a good thing. So we have but, broad agreement here that, that we should encourage export uh, for market, for the, for the economy. Okay. Well, so let me ask you this. What's so, your, how long can this last? Oh, I think um, it'll, because, last a, it'll last a long, long time. We, we talked about stack, stack page. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it could last a very, very long time. I'm not ready to guess. I used to read it the last 200 years. I'm not sure I believe that. I'm now reading it the last 15 years. I'm not sure I'm ready to believe that. I do know that it'll last a long time. But I'll say this from a, from a comptroller, a CFO, CPA standpoint, you know, uh, if you had to pick a state to run for CFO, you'd pick this one, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, why? Explain Because we have a lot of money. I mean, it's terrific. But, but if you had to pick a career like CPA, your job is to worry. And so mm -hmm. you think, well... That's what I do. That's what I do for a living is I worry. Well, we have so a rainy day. From what, else, what else could the state be doing? So what do you worry or about? What else I'll tell you what you worry about. Who was, that, who was that famous person in New York? Willie Loman was his name. He said, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. Because that's where the money is? Yep. So when I think about my job as comptroller in this boom, uh, this boom's not going to do us any good if we, if we don't guard our money and we could bleed to death from a thousand cuts. And so I think one of the things that I intend to do is to really go in and overhaul our controls so that we don't waste this money. And so, and you see, and I know from business, it's not just fraud, waste, abuse, theft, corruption. 
When you have a lot of money, you waste a lot of money. It's remarkable how that works. When you don't have that much money, you don't waste that much money. So we really, as a state, we owe it to our children and our grandchildren to make the most of this boom. The other thing I want to say about the boom is this. Um, it could last a very long time. Uh, I hope that it does. But the economics of the shale industry is much different than the economics of the old conventional industry that we used to know. The wells are a lot more expensive. Uh, the success rate is very high, but the margins are very low. If you're in the oil business, Bill, you probably know this very well. If you're in the oil business and you're uh, in the conventional side of the house, uh, you want three or four times your money back on that well. The decline rates after you drill the well are very stable. There's more risk in each well, but the decline rates are very stable. In, in contrast, if you look at the shale place, uh, you're really looking at it on an IRR basis, internal rate of return basis, with economics that happen very, very quickly. What this leads to is this. We, we've built up infrastructure in our shale industry, and we have not confronted the shale industry with a price collapse. And so we really don't know what it's going to look and feel like in Texas when we have our first price collapse. And a price collapse could take the form of coming down to $71 a barrel. That's an excellent point. I mean, I, so we have a lot of work to do to, to re-engineer our models because we're relying very heavily on this revenue stream, and yet we don't really understand it. And, so and, as, so, us, and as usual, the, the majors get in too late and spend too much money. So you know, you're already starting to see a little bit of, of that conversation where the majors are selling now to your, I guess, first-tier independents and who have a better business plan or a you know, different business plan to be able to handle it. So you know, some of that... Uh, is already bubbling a little bit about the expense, as he's talking about, and and what is everybody looking at? But but I don't think even though they're they they are selling some of their production, I don't think anybody's saying that or, or any link. Uh, the, the length of time is still way out there, so I think there's still time to play. It's just you got to relook at your financial plan and how you're going to look, uh, how you're going to come into these. Things. Yeah, and, and the the point both of you are making, which I think is a fascinating one, is that. Uh, everything's going great right now, but we don't really know whether $80 or $70 oil or $60 derails this. Uh, we don't know when that price is going to come, and we don't know what triggers it. And as we become more accustomed to this flow of money for the state, that, that's, that's worrisome. Um, Chairman Kraft, let me come back to you. Um, um, one of the issues that's percolated in Pennsylvania, in Colorado, and elsewhere is this issue of local versus state control. Where do you come down on that? Who should, should local municipalities have the right to uh, set their own zoning regulations to ban fracking if that's what they want? Or is this so, is this so important for the state that this really needs to be a state decision? And I think it's an interesting question. Obviously, we've got the debate right now in Denton. Mm -hmm. To me, and, and, and from my perspective, I believe that the states have and the regulators in the state have the right to tell you whether you get a permit or not. Cities, historically, and I believe their right is to zone for health and safety, and that's what they've always done. Typically, it's been a 300-foot setback. You call it whatever you want. It's different cities are, what, or are slightly different, but I think it is... Um, for certainty in business, remember, if people are companies are going to invest in business, they want to know the rules first and foremost. We've got a long history of rules, I think, at the Railroad Commission. Frankly, in Texas, we've got a long history. So I think it's the Railroad Commission's job to issue those permits. Now, let me say this. I think it's also companies' job to make sure that they, and it's been mentioned to me, the social license to operate. They ought to be involved in these communities, explain what they're doing, explain what's going on in their business, um, explain what's going on down the street from them and so uh, from their in their communities because that's their job too. They can't just get a permit from us and, and assume they don't have to be involved in the community. I think that's a 
problem that we've had, particularly in the Barnett Shale in, in Texas, that um, we're drilling right in the middle of cities. And the Railroad Commission's there. People don't realize that we're out, we're, we are out doing our job. But I think communities need to have um, to work with these companies, and the companies need to be engaged in the communities too. So to me, it's a balancing act with companies. Um, and remember, in Texas, we're a little different than Colorado when you talk about it, because our mineral interest and the mineral rights trump the surface rights by law in this state. So you have the right to get your minerals out first and foremost. But we look at that every day and for us giving a permit, but we don't look at We have too many cities, and as Chairman Keffer mentioned, we've got 236 counties that are now active. I don't know how you'd know for us. Well, you mentioned, and it's a good point, that mineral rights trump surface rights, but at the same time, a couple months ago, we saw a lawsuit out of Wise County where it, there was a nuisance claim. And the, 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 I forget, it was, I think it was a jury or a judge, upheld a $3 million nuisance. Uh, so even though the, the law is very clear that the company had the right to drill there, you still have this. And, and so that really brings up the question, you mentioned the social right to operate. Is that a threat right now to the boom? Is, is there a sense that companies, that, that the public will just get very frustrated with all the trucks and with the, 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 the compressors and maybe the smells and, and, and some of the emissions from the compressors? Is there a worry that this, this boom could be derailed because frankly the public just finally gets sick of it? Um, let me throw it down here. I, I, I represent Luling. I mean, you've got pump jacks all through the middle of the city yes. in, uh, in Luling. So there's a model for the oil and gas industry operating within the city. But I think it is important that uh, the companies be good citizens. But there's a lot of rural land, and even if some cities uh, become too problematical, regardless of what the law is, uh, I think a lot of companies are going to try to steer away from that. There's plenty of rural areas uh, to, to go in as well. So, but I do think it, it can go, it can. Well, you mentioned companies have to be good citizens. You also mentioned the companies have to be involved. So do we leave it up to the companies to act appropriately, or, or what's the role for the regulator? How, how aggressive or strong does the regulator need to be to make sure that everyone's following the same rules and, and uh, that, that there's, the boom continues? Um, uh, Mr. Collier? I, I'm happy to comment on that. We, uh, we had uh, complexity in Leyline Petroleum when I was a CFO with an interface with the, with the Railroad Commission. It actually worked out to be a very good experience for us. And, uh, and, uh, but to the point, you know, how do we make sure that Texans stay behind this industry? It's so essential to us, right? Uh, I think in terms of investing uh, in infrastructure, uh, and, you know, I drive through Pasadena to, to get down to the Galveston Bay, and it, those refineries stink something fierce, and I love that smell. That smells like money. I think Texans are wired that way, right? Uh, and in terms of the regulatory environment, like the Railroad Commission, it, you know, we're the best of all the states, but if we don't have enough people to really make sure that we deliver on that promise of safety, then, I, then that's where I think the real risk is. And so we, we have a tendency people to... People meaning people working for the Railroad inside Commission? Inside the Railroad Commission. Okay. The technical people, the engineers, to make sure that the permits are done properly, they're issued properly. It's not, I'm not, this is not the scary Democrat arguing we should have more regulation. This is Mike from the oil business saying we've got a great regulatory regime in the Railroad Commission, but if we don't fund it, it won't perform properly. And that's where we run, run into trouble. Well, the, other, the other thing the state's got to do is we've got to step up for the uh, highways. Because the amount of trucks and, and the wear and tear those trucks are putting on uh, the roadways, uh, Eagleford in particular, uh, is critical. And you're going to uh, 
you're going to lose the public and you're going to lose the ability to uh, a- adequately pursue development of the wells if the state doesn't take some of the uh, funds that they're getting from the severance tax and reinvest them in the infrastructure that's necessary to... Representative Heffer, you, you handled, or the, the legislature handled that last session. Did they do enough? Does this need to be revisited? Uh, well, we started. Okay. Uh, we, matter of fact, uh, Senator Uresti and I uh, both uh, worked on, uh, on, on, county, on county roads. For the first time ever, the state put money forth for county roads uh, for uh, maintenance. And I'm glad to say, though, it wasn't just what the legislature was doing. The oil and gas industry, by and large, was already working with counties and cities and whatever for. I mean, it's a, it's a twofold thing. They have to have roads, too. The city ha- has to have roads and safe roads. And so that, that, that cooperation was already there. We took it one step further where we could give money for the near term that we did and then allow counties to have reinvestment zones uh, for future now, that's a start, and, and obviously with the growth of the oil and gas industry, we need to do more. But I do feel with the rainy day fund, which is severance tax, everybody remembers how that, uh, how that is funded. Uh, we started with water to, uh, last session. We have Prop 1 up this time for uh, money out of the rainy day fund to go towards transportation. A step. It's not going to be the cure-all. It's not going to be because transportation is an ongoing, extremely expensive uh, effort uh, for this state, and we're way behind the eight ball. But uh, but it is something that I feel like that using that. And I think going back to your, to to the idea of what, are we being careful with our money? I mean, there is debate on whether or not to take any money at all out of the rainy day fund. But I feel that if we're going to take taxpayer dollar, tax dollars out of this fund, infrastructure, there's not a better uh, reason to spend it to invest infrastructure in for the state. Well, I wanted to follow up on something a point Mr. Collier made a couple minutes ago and address it to you, uh, Chairman Craddock. Uh, Texas, I forget the numbers offhand, but we're up what, one or two million barrels a day of production over the last few years. It's just a phenomenally large number. How much has the Railroad Commission grown in terms of its staffing and its ability? Does more need to be done? Are you going to go to to Mr. Kaffer and Senator Uresti, whoever he is, and say, hey, we need more money. I mean, what's your plan? We're at 2.24 million barrels of oil a day right now in the state. Um, And so that's about double from where we were about six years ago. Uh, Yes, the answer is yes. And here's where we are as an agency, um, just for comparison. In 1995, we had 1,500 people working for our agency. Today, we have the ability to hire 807 we have 765 working for our agency, which we're, anybody who is an engineer, geologist, or you want a job, please come see me because we'll hire you tomorrow. And I'm sort of not kidding when I say that. Um, but here, Can you compete? <laughs> Sorry. Can you compete with the Exxons that or is, Devin? That is the problem right there that That's she's right. running into is that we cannot, as a state, and this is a good problem, obviously, but you cannot compete with what's going on in the private sector right now to be to work on a on, on a state salary, or, that's right. or you know that's, that's a fact of life that we all run into the Permian Basin. I'll tell you what they've got a they've they've got and and Chris you know they've got a Burger King. I mean just just finished Burger King that's sitting empty because if you can pass a drug test, you're working in the oil and gas industry, <laughs> and they so cannot true. get anybody so to work the, in Dairy that. Queen, Burger King. But is the answer Queen, gonna, that's true? So, no, the answer. Well, the answer is a combination of things. I think for us as an agency, one. For us to be more efficient and more more effective, so what we're doing is upgrading our IT right now. We're going to come back for 
phase two coming and ask for more available dollars, which by the way, we're one of those truth and budgeting agencies. We're bringing in more than we're spending, so we just want the authority to, to spend it. Um, but we're gonna come and ask for 188 new people this next cycle. And here, when you talk about safety, we're gonna put them in permitting, but we're also putting them in, um, in pipeline safety inspections and inspectors across the, the board because that's where we're short on people. We have and we expect our wells to be um, double from where we are. We have 254,000 active wells in this state right now. We have drilled in the past year and a half, have permitted another 100,000 so do you, if that gives you an idea, and they're moving and they're putting pipe in as fast as they can lay pipe almost in this industry. Um, so we need more inspectors to make sure we are doing our job correctly. But when you talk about competing, and I will say the legislature gets that problem, which we appreciate. Um, they gave us, we, when I walked in the agency not quite two years ago, we did an analysis with other agencies, um, like TCEQ, like GLO, just other agencies that are looking at the same type people we are. We needed to be competitive with General Land Office. We needed $12 million additional dollars just in salary. Um, to be competitive with PUC, TCEQ, we needed about $8 million. We got $3 million, which we appreciate, so we've put that in oil and gas. We also got some dollars to put into Midland because we've put, um, we're places where we have high cost of living, which believe it or not, Midland's one of the highest cost of living places in the country right now. Um, so we've added salary into the, you know, given some boost to those people out there. Um, but we're looking, seriously, that's our challenge. And the real challenge we have an, as an industry overall is you've either been in this industry from the 80s and you kind of stayed in and now you're retirement age, which I have about 30% of my agency able to retire, or you just got in five years ago or you're just getting in. So we have a 20-year gap across the industry. So everybody's looking for the same people I'm looking for. It doesn't matter what size company you are or what you are, you're all looking for the same people and we can't pay for them. Representative Flores, I see you're holding uh, in your hands, uh, I believe that's the document that uh, Bobby Jindal came out with not long ago. Uh, Bobby Jindal and I wrote okay. a, uh, an energy strategy for the country. Well, I wanted to point out something. One of the first things in it says the problem with the U.S. energy policy is that there is none. That's right. correct. Okay, so what what is the role of the federal government? What kind yeah. of energy? Because well, and I make this point because we didn't have an energy policy, and now we have this energy boom going on. So why do we need an energy policy now? Well, well, we do. I mean, because if we really want to maximize the ability to uh, take this beyond the states that are enjoying the, the energy booms, we need to have a policy that reflects the free market, reflects the state of technology and engineering today. And we can have more states that are able to participate in this based on real world facts, real world science. And we need, those are things we need to do. We, and there are other things that are artificially hindering the ability of this current energy cycle to be longer, to have longer term sustainability. I mean, you asked me a minute, I mean, you started out the question is, mm -hmm. where are we in this boom? Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I've been through three of these cycles now, and we're at the very beginning of this, but we have a couple of things that could cause, cause it to stop. Mm -hmm. And one of them is a lack of a policy from Washington. The second one is the, the ability of Washington, or the, the desire by some in Washington to overregulate the industry uh, without any sound science behind doing that. And so what we need to do is, is rely on free market principles. And also, once we get, once it, let's say that we got our energy policy perfect. I think this is pretty close. Of course, I'm one of the authors of it. <laughs> but 
let's say that we got it right. We need to find a way to make it sustainable. There, there is going to be a time when there, we're not going to want to be on oil and gas, that we will have run, the, uh, run out of the economically available oil and gas. I don't know when that is. Is it 80 years from now? Is it 100 years? But while we're in this boom, as, as uh, Mr. Kepfer said, we need to uh, invest it correctly. And so one of the things that, that didn't make it in this draft, which I believe in, which is something that Texas did you know, decades ago, is to set up an endowment. I call it the 21st century American dream endowment. And we take the proceeds from part of this oil and gas boom coming from federal lands and federal offshore and put it in this endowment and use that for infrastructure, like what Prop 1 would do in Texas, like the Permanent University Fund did in Texas, like the endowment in Alaska. Uh, we put it in there, use it part of it for infrastructure, use part of it for education, and part of it for basic research. Basic research is what's going to provide the seed corn for what energy looks like three or four or five decades from now. And so I, I think we need to, I think Washington ought to be pro-energy and, and instead of the anti-energy. Washington has been, Washington regulations have been organized around scarcity for at least four decades now. We're in an era of abundance and so Washington needs to pivot and think about how do we maximize this great set of resources we have, not only for today, not for, for today's families, but for generations to come. And we can do it if we look in on a forward-looking basis. Well, we're, we're in a period of abundance that's very clear, and, and that's, frankly, a great time to be a legislator. You, you'd prefer to be a legislator in a period well, of abundance. Well, here in Texas, it's great. It's a little tougher in Washington. They don't okay. get we're it, we're so. still in the hole on our budget. <laughs> yeah. in, in uh, well, in abundance in terms of energy, if you're talking right. about energy. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. But it's, it's very mixed around the country. I mean, for instance, if you're, if you're in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. You're still burning fuel oil, and you'd like to be burning natural gas, but local, uh, state and local regulations and some federal friction keeps you from being able to build a pipeline to New Hampshire. And if you could do that, New Hampshire families would be better off. And I'm just saying that in, in a lot of... And the of, environment would be better off. Absolutely. Well, but let me ask you this. Should there be a target mix of energy? I mean, we're talking right now about oil and natural gas, and these are, uh, you know, obviously wonderful fuels, but what about, I mean, should we have... A, a, a goal that we want this percent of renewables and that percent of, of nuclear and this percent of natural gas. Should we be thinking along those lines? Because we, you know, this would be the time to set those goals. We have. It should be now. But let me say this: those, yes, we should set uh, components of our energy mix. Okay. But the bulk of that should be set by the market. Yep. The only area in which I think that we need to have government look beyond the market, beyond economics, mm -hmm. is with respect to nuclear. I mean, if we really want to be at a mission, have an emissions-free future, we ought to be building all the nuclear plants we can. Now, for those of you that are aghast and say, oh, this is terrible, there are a bunch of environmentalists that finally got the picture on how, how hard renewables are on the environment. And they, and they came to the same conclusion that what we need to do is go nuclear. We need to have about 80% of our base load electric generation from nuclear. And then the rest. But the what do we do with all the natural gas then? If we well, have eighty percent, if it were me, I'd say put it in our cars, coal. in our, our coal. cars and our trucks. And 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 our emissions. Our we're the only industrialized country in the world that's had our emissions improve over the last decade. And it didn't come from any Washington policy. It came because the free market said natural gas is the way to go. And, and so well, now back, back back to what I'm saying though. If on this nuclear side, go see. A, there's a film produced by an environmental community called Pandora's Promise. Yeah. If you go watch that film, you'll come away with a different opinion 
of, of uh, nuclear than, than a popular science. It, 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 it's time to restart nuclear because a lot of our uh, nuclear plants are reaching the end of their uh, design life. Wouldn't you rather have modern uh, technology rather than a deteriorating, uh, uh, aging nuclear facility uh, in place? So we, we, we can't just shy away from uh, nuclear as the, the vast majority of our nuclear plants are, are at the end of their design lifetime or lifespan. Do, 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 do we have from do we have, gas guy? Yeah. You know, and I, just I, to I, talk I'm about a mix, so. an art like California put this artificial, you know, what they want to do, what they want to see their mix. That's and that's the reason more Californians than any other state yeah. have moved to Texas, that's right. moved their companies yeah. because they see this artificially high uh, uh, bar on this, on their manufacturing outlet or whether their company, whatever the case may be, and the technology is not there to reach that bar. So they're saying, well, why fight it? They'll come to another state where they see an opportunity, and that's what, uh, and, that's and, what they're doing. And by the way, this state has more renewable energy than California does. That's right. That's so, right. Terms, We've invested in terms of the, the, the private market wants a diversity of, yeah. uh, of fuel sources. Well, but I don't know if I just destroyed my mic or not, so I hope you can hear me. We um, can. Okay, good. Uh, well, is there anyone here who, who disagrees that, that uh, both the congressmen have been talking about that there's a role for the federal government to encourage uh, more nuclear power plant development? I'm assuming you're talking or about... Or other alternatives. I mean, it's not... You know, Bill, Bill's very nuclear, but we do need to... Renewables, continue. or what are we talking here? You, you, we've got, he, Bill pointed out that you need the, the fundamental research... Uh, and our colleges and universities uh, need to be encouraged to, to do that because we don't know what the uh, what energy we're going to be using 100 years from now. Right. No. But the research that we do today is going to be driving that. So That's one right. of the roles of the federal government is that blue sky research to, to fund the universe. Okay. And, do we have any? And when I say yeah. that, I, I don't mean Solyndra. I mean basic research, not applied research, not not, not picking winners capital, and losers, not picking winners and losers. But where where you have a, a, a professor or a scientist that has a curiosity about why does, why does a, a material behave a certain way when sunlight hits it? And that, if we invest in those people at a better rate than we do today, uh, we, will, we will find a way to have a more diverse energy mix without the federal government or any state coming up with a mandate. And we'll all be better off. Anytime a government picks a solution set, you're going to have a suboptimum economic outcome than you will if the market sets it. And so what we ought to strive to do is to try to let the market set that as much as we can. Well, Again, except for, I think, nuclear is something we need to encourage. We, don't, we can't build it. We just need to make it so if a, if a utility says, I want to build a nuclear plant, they get a, a, a good, efficient, safe review, and then they get the license and they go. And it doesn't cost them $100 million and they give up, which, by the way, that's yes, where they are on nuclear at this point. Yeah. That's why nobody's building in this country. Well, well let me circle back and, and kind of, uh, before we, we're going to get to questions in a, in a couple minutes, but let me just kind of come full circle to where I started, which was this idea of how do you not mess up the boom this time? Because <laughs> Texas um, has very much pursued a, a free enterprise uh, free market approach to energy development has done very well, but there have been some, uh, there, there are many complaints out there. there at the, the last session, there was a lot of talk about concerns about uh, induced seismicity, man-made earthquakes. Uh, the San Antonio newspaper recently reported in the Eagleford that there are more, uh, let's see, more emissions, volatile organic compound emissions was from the Eagleford wells which was greater than that was what was being admitted by Corpus Christi refineries. Are there any specific areas where, and I'm just going to open this up to whoever, but are there any specific areas where the state of Texas needs to be more involved to make sure that the good 
that this boom is bringing um, is not overwhelmed by some of the bad. Well, I'll tell you what, what? I do first. Okay, well, I'll I want to point Christy Craddock to be ahead of the EPA. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about water. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about water for a second. Fracking, yes. the, the, uh, the uh, fresh water uh, content to fracking is, is enormous, and I'm not sure that the economics of how water is priced is sort of finding its way into the investment decisions that companies make when they frack wells. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, well, might survive, we might survive this drought if El Nino comes, but we might not survive the next drought. Well, I think so we really have to think about fresh water and fracking. What about, is well, there a role for the state to say, Look for brackish water. Well, or I, use think more that, I think that's, that's what's happening. going, that's what's on, going right on right now. That's I think exactly we all right. know that's what. Well, look, right now the state only, when you are looking at oil and gas, only 1% of the state's water is being used in oil and gas. We use more in golf courses in this state than we do for hydroelectric. But yeah. is there any specific role for the state to encourage that, or yes. do you just let them? Yes. Okay, so we're, we're in pro, by the way, we passed a rule a year and a half ago at the Royal Commission, partly because the legislature asked us to kind of get involved, I think that we have redone our recycling rules. So you are seeing more and more companies, and this is where the free market figures it out, I think, and government getting involved actually makes it worse a lot of times. We're using less water in the oil and gas industry even than we were five years ago because companies have figured out a couple of things. One, how to recycle, they're beginning to figure out how to recycle water. We are, we are in a state where we have eight geological different worlds in Texas. So try to write a rule in Texas and then when Bill jokes about the EPA, which they are not our friend as far as how we operate in this state, they get in my business a lot and I'm not sure it's always helpful, but Think about Texas has got eight different ways we write. We have eight different geological formations. Think about what the rest of the country is like. So it's hard to write a one-size-fits-all, first and foremost. So I think states do it better than the feds, and I like the, these two sitting right here because they get that concept. But we are encouraging fracking, I mean, encouraging recycling after you frack. We're seeing companies begin to recycle their water after they've drilled wells. We're seeing companies use more brackish water, in fact, that there are companies in the Permian Basin specifically that are not using fresh water at all anymore, period. They're off of it, and not because I told them to, and not because any legislator or any other government so agency told them, because it's economics That's for them. Right. They figured out, they technology. live in these communities. The technology's there, they live in these communities. They're using effluent water, they're using brackish water, and they're drilling deeper to use water that we aren't going to drink because we, don't, we can't drink this water. They're desalinating water. They're coming up with the technology, not government-driven. This is nothing. Te technology out there using solid rocket fuel to, to, for hydraulic fracturing. Well, and that's what, it, that's what the goal is to get away from water altogether. Right. Right. And right. they're using, they're looking at propane. They're looking, Canada right now is fracking with propane. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there, there is that technology out there. And before you get into the question and answer, yep. I want you to know that uh, Senator Uresti, you know, couldn't be here today, but it's because he's roughnecking on one of his, uh, <laughs> one of his rigs in his uh, district, so that's why he couldn't make it. He's, he's serving his people by... Yes, he uh, is. Yeah, okay, he's all right, wrap, wrapping. Okay, so um, I thought we were going to... Well, uh, I, let's start with questions, and, and um, I, uh, hopefully we've got people coming. I just want to remind people that this is, question, this is a time for questions, not a time for speechifying, so if you could please... Give us a question. We'll try to see if we can get the right person to answer. Yes, sir. Darn, I, was, I wanted to give a speech. Uh, <laughs> actually, you, you, all of you have been great. One thing that you all haven't talked about is if you look back at the, uh, the bust in 83, the price of oil was $35 and it dropped to 10 And it did this fairly quickly, primarily because of the glut. And a lot of this glut was due to two things. One was uh, oil, elsewhere, the drop in prices elsewhere in the world, and the other was a drop in consumption. 
if the if we got a comparable drop now, it would go down to about thirty dollars a barrel or thirty five dollars a barrel. I'm just curious. All of these technologies that we are so excited about are also being used in Brazil, Argentina, Canada, all over the world. Isn't it? How, how should we be preparing for the fact that there is going to be huge production elsewhere in the world, which will, it strikes me, will have to bring down the prices worldwide, including here, which will be. It will remind me of my old days in Midland when it dropped down okay. like that. So, so how, sh- how should we prepare for an era where there's simply, I mean, it's just kind of stunning to even hear myself say this, but there's just too much oil out there. Well, as, you know, as a person that's been in the industry, uh, the longest of, of the folks on the panel, I would say that what we need to do is that uh, the, the operators, the folks in the business, need to always try to be as efficient as they can and always be looking for the next technology that brings their cost down. I mean, if the price of a barrel of oil goes down to thirty dollars, but you've been able to lower your price, your 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 cost of cap, of uh, exploration production by a like amount, then you have the same economic margins, and you can continue to invest in the business and continue to produce energy for the world. But and so that, mean, that's you, one of the things. Can we, we really to, be? I mean, if, if if ultimately in the United States you have to bring in. Five million gallons of water and prop and to, to get the oil out, and Saudi Arabia still has these great reservoirs and they're getting it out for a cost. Can we really compete in, in a world where, where the price goes down like that, even if you're really strong competitive? We've already shown we can. Look Saudi at, Arabia technology. really doesn't have it anymore. Yeah, tech, uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't have anything on what's happening in the United States today. I mean, no, they, we, but we, they do have they, a much lower They still have 90 to 10 million we barrels a day of production. Them in July. And what got us there? Technology and engineering and science were the things that got us there. Those are the things that I think that are different this time that will help this boom or this, this economic uh, situation we're in with respect to energy be more sustainable. Well, in the plus, in 83, you didn't have China and India. You didn't have the developing sure. Sure. world as we have today. And, and China, where they have a shell play, they are still going to be a buyer, not a producer of the large part. You could, we could find ourselves, the thing that I worry about, CPA, that worries all the time, we are uh, oil, CPM, oil industry. <laughs> Our, uh, you've graduated to CEO. That's why I'm stuck in CFO oh, land. Okay. Okay. Uh, our oil industry is a very high-tech industry because a substantial part of it, the growth anyway, is coming out of fracking. Uh, the rest of the world is a very low-tech industry. I hate to say that because it's not, nothing's low-tech in the oil business, but it's conventional. The point is that the world crude price could set up and down, and they won't really care whether or not it sets at a level that's lower than we need in Texas to thrive. In mm-hmm. other words, you could have... And their lift costs are much lower. You could have a lot of, you could have a lot of production in the world in the, in the supply and demand balance uh, at $60 a barrel, whereas we can't carry on at $60 a barrel, and our rig count drops like a rock. So we're going to have to train ourselves, at the point I made earlier, we're going to have to train ourselves that there's, there's a, we have to have more than one way of looking at What's going to happen to Texas with the commodity price? This, okay. dis- this right. technological disconnect is brand. So we're we are, we're still the high price producers, and if the price drops or if demand drops, we could be the first Texas production. But I say the this: the rainy day fund is a stroke of brilliance when you think about it, because the rainy day fund, established back in the 80s, recognized that our revenue stream goes up and down, but our investments need to stay stable. Mm-hmm. What we haven't trained ourselves to do in Texas is use it. We don't trust ourselves to actually use it. We're getting over that, right? So I voted for Prop 6. I'm going to vote for the other prop. We're getting over that. But I really think that we should train ourselves to use the rainy day fund for the purpose it's intended. The commodity price could drop to 65. We could have rig count drop like a rock. It could stay there for a while. But you don't want to run around and stop investing. You use the fund for that reason. You're right. But I think it's the overwhelming that all of a sudden, because, you know, when it was first 
put together. You know, if it had a couple of hundred thousand, it was going to have maybe a half a million uh, in it. I mean, uh, have whatever. But to have maybe 12 billion in right. it by the time this next session rolls around. I mean, it's a, it's a big number. fairly overwhelming. Yeah. Reminds me of the old saw, you know, a banker gives you an umbrella when the sun is shining and asks for it back when it starts raining. <laughs> yes, ma'am. The idea of what the biggest threat to the boom is. Um, I think there are a lot of possibilities, but I do think price is probably one of the biggest threats. Um, yesterday, I, I was at another conference here at UT where the head of equity research from Raymond James in Houston spoke that their models predict that because of the glut and condensate, you could see prices drop as early as early 2015. Um, so my question is for the two members from DC. Uh, Flores, you mentioned that you know, the idea to export crude is something you support, but we can't quite go to that vote before the public's ready for it and they make the connection that it's That's not right. a threat to consumer prices. But again, there's this kind of time concern that if you don't address it quickly, um, you could see prices fall and then there's job pain, there's economic pain. Mm -hmm. So how do we speed up that process so that the public gets on board with that idea? Well, I think that's where we at Congress need to do a much better job in messaging this. And uh, this, this issue has just started to come up in the last few months. And I have, it's typical, Washington is behind the curve in trying to, to, to realize what's happened. Uh, you know, I, I ran for Congress because I got frustrated about what was coming out of Washington four years ago. And uh, you know, I've been there, and I, now I understand that it just doesn't respond quickly enough. We need to, um, A, educate the other members of Congress about the economics of oil exports. And then once we get them educated, we need to come up with a, you know, most members of Congress are not rocket scientists, so you need to give them four or five easy talking points that they can use. <coughs> I, I hate to say it, but it's pretty scary. But give them four or five easy talking points that they can use and make it relevant to the family that's sitting around their dinner table at home saying, hey, you notice how the price of gasoline has gone down? You notice how our electricity bill has gone down? Have you seen how the, the uh, heating bill has gone down? Those are the things. If we can put it in those types of terms where the public gets behind it, you have a better informed group of elected officials. At the same time, you've got the grassroots call Washington and say, Hey, make this happen. So we've got to strike while the iron's hot. Can I need to join me and Mr. McCall on our export bill? So there was a I'm member. The there was a member from New Jersey who was a rocket scientist, if I'm not mistaken, and he left. So and now there are no rocket scientists yeah. in Congress. <laughs> yes, sir. First, just to, to acknowledge that there is no greater question in Texas today than how do we not get stuck holding the bag. And uh, I just having observed a number of booms in a number of industries, I've always observed that everybody in, uh, connected says that we're early on in the boom until suddenly we're not. So I'm extraordinarily nervous when there's such consensus. Uh, just dovetailing with what uh, the session that took place before, I was very surprised speaking to someone about uh, some skeptics or um, uh, outliers, the, the doubters who say that the predictions are wildly out of line for how long the, the uh, boom is going to last. And, I'm, and I was shocked when one reputable person told me, well, actually, uh, the, uh, the skeptics are not outliers anymore, that there's a, a great deal. Uh, the consensus isn't near what people are saying. So I would just offer this as an experiment. And I, I'll, is there a anybody, question? Here's the question. Okay. Okay. What if? We applied the same skepticism about consensus and scientific consensus that the oil industry applies to climate change to our predictions for uh, gas production. Should we be more skeptical? 
Should we be more skeptical about how long this boom's going to last and, and let, what let to me, do about it? Let me, let me talk a little bit about this. The reason, the reason this boom is, is a little bit different, and that, you know, you've heard this before. I mean, that's the famous BS you hear from every <laughs> your stockbroker. This time it's different. There is, there is somewhat of a difference. When, when, I, when I drilled for oil and gas, I was in the conventional business. We were trying to find a sand and find the, oil and get the hydrocarbons in a sand somewhere. This time we're going for the, for the hydrocarbons in the shales. But when we drilled, when we go say, hey, we're gonna spend $15 million to drill a hole in the Gulf of Mexico, we, that was more of a project basis. It was a job type of, of, of a concept. What we do today in the unconventional side drilling with shale is more of a process it's more of a factory and i would and so as if you look at what's happened in the factory the of drilling in the unconventional space it's gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper in terms of lifting costs and i think that we could do it i mean if you look at it it's not terribly dissimilar from computer memory computer storage and things like that i'm not trying to say it's perfectly equivalent so i think that I think that the, the technology, if this is such a technology-driven play and a process and engineering-driven play, it's different than the old wildcatter type of, of mindset. Well, so it's, it's not, a, it's not a, an individual job set. It's a factory across a field. So is, is, there any, is, there any, um, is there anyone who agrees with the premise that we need to be more uh, skeptical? That we need to have, I mean, because you seem to be very confident, the factory, that we can do this. Anyone on the panel feel that we need to be more skeptical about what's going on and, and I think we can't ignore the opportunity we, we can't it can't be oil and gas or nothing we, it's, it's an all of the above energy policy that uh, that we need to pursue but you, it's, you can look at the shales and it's much more accurate to, to conclude how much is in the ground it's not like we're gonna we're not gonna be surprised because we ran out uh, but it's gonna feel boom and bust it's gonna feel just like boom and bust because we're subject to global commodity prices as we well, and when, so and it'll when feel you, like a boom and bust. And the factory the piece is actually beginning to be true. We've got new numbers from a company that I just heard this week that operates in the Eagleford, and I've always said that they're $10 million wells. They're doing them for five to eight now. Yeah. The yeah. cost is coming down because they're figuring it out. The, so so I, in some respects, when you ask if we're... Um, we know what's down there now. We've always known they were there. Actually, if you look in South Texas, we've drilled wells for years in South Texas, but we couldn't make it work. Let me, let me chime in again also. We should be skeptical. We should always, in the back of our heads, say there's no 100% case. You know, We've got to figure out what the P50 is or the P-mean case in, in terms of investing in this business. But let, let me say this. The, if you look at... Uh, what lower energy prices do in terms of stimulating economic activity around the world, that creates the demand response that means you can use more energy because you've got more economic activity. So, you know, I think we could wind up in a situation where we're going to have cycles, but maybe, maybe, maybe they have a lot less amplitude than they've had in the past. Maybe. Again, we're still early on in this. But I'd love nothing better than to get away from the, the first cycles I had when I went into the business. And, you know, in 80, you had people in Houston, they were commuting by helicopter from Sugarland to downtown. And in 86, they were burning their house up to sell it to the insurance company. So, and maybe, and maybe it's not skepticism. Maybe it's trying to be realistic. Real, you know, realism is better. What yeah. we're trying okay. to look at instead of skepticism. Right Sir. Howdy. Uh, my name is Thomas Crockett, and I'm a semester away from a Ph.D. in physics. And since I enrolled as a freshman at A&M in 2006, the, it's been made much harder to get through school 
because of the severe cuts that have been made to National Science Foundation and other R&D agency funding. Right. Uh, we've fallen from uh, number one in the world in per capita R&D or in uh, R&D spending as a percentage of GDP right. when I enrolled at A&M to now that I'm almost out, we're seventh. Uh, by 2017, China is expected to pass us not only in uh, as a percentage of GDP, but also in terms of total spending. So a large part of that is due to the Budget Control Act and the sequester and uh, all of these other big across-the-board cuts. What have you done as our federal legislators to prevent this crucial area of research from being impacted by the budget fights? Well, I will, I will tell you this. The, uh, if, if you look at, at funding for R&D, for the, the big chunk of R&D, on an absolute dollar basis, it's higher than it was back in 2008. Uh, it did go through a dip in, in 2012 and 13. Uh, that was after the sugar high, the stimulus that hit it, and all the PIs that come to me said, hey, it should continue to go up from there. And we're saying, no, that was just, that was just the big shot of sugar that was given. But let me, let me tell you, this is, this is Bill Flores' view of the world when it comes to basic research. That's our seed corn. I think we... If you look at what the federal government does well, most of the things it does fairly poorly. But one of the things it has done well is in the area of basic research through NIH and NSF and, and DARPA and you know you go down the, the list of the of the, the research-based agencies. If if I were the czar of the federal budget, I would do it the same way pharma does R and D or high tech companies do R and D, and that's have a percentage of GDP set aside for basic research. Again, basic, not applied, no, no venture capital or, or uh, commercialization, anything like that. But I would do that. And that's the reason I like the idea of taking some of the revenues from an aggressive energy scheme and putting it into the, what I call the 21st century American Dream endowment and dedicating part of that to R&D so that we can create the, the economy of the future two or three decades from now. Representative we've got to get Let me cut you off just because we're, we're okay. coming up on time. But oh, sorry. Representative Farenthold, um, you had mentioned before that you believe there needs to be Blue sky R and D work. I mean, are you ready to commit? Uh, as as the question. Well, so here's asked? the issue: we've got to turn the economy around. So just like Texas, where we have some excess of money to spend on the things we all want to do, uh, we've got that. We so we've got to follow the Texas model of letting the economy grow, whether it's the energy sector or whatever. The federal government needs to get out of the way, so the entrepreneurs can go out and hire some more people. We can have the Dairy Queens all over the country offering eighteen dollars an hour for employees and get the federal government out of the way. Ma'am, do you have a quick question you wanted to ask? He, he kind of answered that. Kind of answered. All right. Well, we're pretty much wrapped up. I, I kind of heard from both of you, yes, but not quite yet. We need to get the economy really rolling, and then. Uh, tax well, reform, reg reform, uh, yeah. things like that. I mean, if you want to fix the federal budget, cut some expenditures, but then grow the economy. Yeah. Yeah. You, you well, can't cut your way out of it. Thank you very much for everyone to come, especially resisting the um, yeah. siren song of, of uh, Senator Cruz being interviewed uh, at the same time. So I really appreciate that. Um, so thanks to our panel also.